Welcome to the Creative City Network of Canada podcast mini-series, where we explore the topics and conversations that connect and support cultural leadership, celebrate cultural excellence, and nurture cultural development in local communities throughout Canada. I'm your host, Anita Latham. Today, we welcome Nancy Duxbury, Senior Researcher and Coordinator of the Cities, Cultures and Architecture Research Group at the Centre for Social Studies, University of Corumbra in Portugal. Nancy was a co-founder and director of research for the Creative City Network of Canada in its early years. And as an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University, Thompson Rivers University. And her research has examined cultural mapping, culture and local sustainable development, culture-based development models in smaller communities, and she has published books on cultural development, cultural policy, and cultural tourism. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful, wonderful to have you here. Now, even though you're based in Portugal, you're originally from Canada. Uh, Tell us about your scholarly career path and how it's influenced where you've got today. Um, the path has actually not been a straightforward thing, but um, a path, a winding path. So um, I'm actually from Halifax originally, and I have a Bachelor of Commerce in Management from St. Uh, Mary's University from Halifax, and then I moved to Vancouver, where I took on a Master's of Publishing degree and then a PhD in Communications, worked at the City of Vancouver, which then launched the Creative City Network of Canada. And um, eventually found myself in Portugal working at the Centre for Social Studies. Um, so it's, it's definitely been jumping. It's been, it's really helped me understand and be more aware of the different locations and situations in which we work and the systems that surround what we can do and, and have a greater awareness. And I think the importance of practice and research links, which are often not there, but hopefully growing. And also just a a very multidisciplinary, there is no through line in there, really undisciplined. So you really do, I did, uh, I guess, um, gain in the process a much higher appreciation for different perspectives on similar issues and this importance of bridging. Yeah. So in relation to that and the different perspective stuff, you know, you're a Canadian who's now living and working in Portugal. Um, What would you say are some similarities and difference or differences between the arts and cultural ecologies between those two countries? I think I've become much more aware of how much geography and history influence what we do culturally and why we do it and how particular cultural policy is set up and things like that. And um, there's so many differences in the countries. I think in Portugal, um, uh, there's the the dominant, or I guess there's a continuing um, influence of connections with the Portuguese-speaking world. Yes. And, and so there's very much a, a greater tie than I had originally um, had realized. And on the other hand, I think I've come to really appreciate the specificities of Canada in its geographical um, 
proximity to the United States and, and um, indigenous peoples in Canada where there isn't really an equivalent in Portugal as well as immigrant perspectives and how much that is seen as, as also flavoring what is Canada. The other thing that um, stands out for me as a cultural policy sort of researcher is Portugal being part of the EU has a huge influence on um, where funding comes from, where yeah. programs come from, and how you are supposed to be connected to this larger, very complex whole, yeah. uh, which is a whole other layer that you don't have in Canada. Um, within Portugal, I see um, there seems to be more of a dominance of the there's two large cities and so they are really quite present within a big uh, a small country whereas in Canada yeah. being so spread out you have many other major centers you can have but increasingly I think the smaller mid-sized cities are, are um, becoming much more vibrant and Coimbra for instance is becoming known for its visual arts uh, yeah. vibrancy connected to the university and just, uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question as no, such. No, but... I have. And I, I think <laughs> but... your answer is fascinating because I think one of the things that we often forget, you know, when we live in places like Canada or, you know, everybody can hear that I'm obviously not Canadian um, or New Zealand or in Australia, that governance structure that is the EU, which is incredibly interesting and not many of us engage with that or have that as an extra layer of impact and, but also an extra layer of funding, which is really, really interesting. Now, Nancy, one of the things that you are well known for is cultural mapping. Uh, and your interest in cultural mapping. And I um, understand that you did a PhD in communications. How yes. did you kind of get to land on cultural mapping? I think the first experience with cultural mapping was actually the development of the cultural uh, cultural mapping toolkit by the Creative City Network in Canada, yeah. which we produced in 2007. Um, and seeing that have... Um, an influence, an international influence after it was published online yeah. and people really it, it taking on a life of its own, which was it's almost what you wish for when you yeah. develop projects. And I guess it, it stayed more in my mind as um, an area of interest or curiosity rather than an area of uh, research that I could do at the time. Yeah. Um, but then I had an opportunity in 2011 to develop a conference in Coimbra and we added cultural map as one of the threads which turned out to be quite interesting and yeah. we realized there was anyway it, in short order it, um, we de I developed a full conference on cultural mapping in 2014 um, with quite a surprising take up for a topic that we thought would be quite uh, specific and small yeah. and a very high international interest from all different perspectives. And so that also fueled the development of uh, a book in 2015 and different special issues of journals and everything. So, uh, and, and just this, I think it got back to my interest in bridging and the different perspectives yeah. and the fact that this was something that clearly was taking off, but rooted both in practice and in research and in artistic practice. And people didn't have much opportunity to actually talk to each other except at these venues like this conference. And so it yeah. became 
interest. So it continues to be something. Fantastic. So we've talked a little bit about cultural mapping. And just for the listeners, I had the incredible privilege of doing a summer school with Nancy and in Portugal, which was fantastic. And we did a lot of work around uh, cultural mapping and things like that. And it was absolutely wonderful. But for our listeners, Nancy, how would you describe cultural mapping? It was lovely to have you at the summer school, first Thank of all. <laughs> Um, I think it's it's really a um, multifaceted, I guess, emerging field. It, on one side, it's a knowledge gathering or research um, tactic or exercise yeah. methodology. On the other hand, it's also a platform for engagement. And it's something that bridges, like I mentioned, research and practice. Um, traditionally, cultural mapping really focused on identifying and documenting and articulating cultural assets, whether tangible or intangible. Yeah. But what I find is increasingly interesting is that it's expanding for various reasons so that it's taking up more uh, broader approaches. Uh, it's been termed cultural DNA mapping to, char- to explore and characterize communi- connections between cultures, territory, and the people who live there, Um, their knowledge, experiences, memories, what makes a place special. And whether this is coming out of the fact that the physical things were already mapped and now what, but it seems to be a growing um, interest in how places are distinctive in today's world and how to keep that and how to, and so cultural mapping seems to play a can play an important role in that. Yeah, and so picking up on that, Nancy, one of the things that you really have mentioned uh, is what you're mapping. And I think that was really interesting. You you mentioned that just a moment ago, like, you know, what it is you're mapping. And so I guess my question around that is, um, you know, in relation to cultural mapping, how does a municipality think about what they're mapping and then what is that culture in relation to tangibles and intangible assets you know I mean that we could spend a long 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 time talking about what the definition of culture is but we're not going to do that um, but in relation to tangibles and intangibles of cultural assets and how municipalities think about that in relation to their planning what are your thoughts around that moving forward? Um, I think there's been a lot of effort about um, identifying tangible assets and perhaps the intangibles throws people off because mapping intangibles seems like an odd thing. Um, but I can see that the researchers and the artists are increasingly interested in the intangibles and how can you articulate that, how can you document that. What And, and I think relating to that, there's a growing realization that tangible and intangible are related so it's not either or but it's together um i'm and it's oftentimes underscored by i think of the term visible to visibilize whether it's tangible or intangible it's bringing things together in a way that you see things as a whole or you see the overlaps or you see how things might work together Um, i'm involved in a project called urbanat and as part of it we're uh, we're designing and installing green corridors within a few cities and yeah. we're we're trying to innovate cultural mapping as one of the real one of the local diagnostic tools that needs to be done and we're looking at the type of material that uh, the information that's coming forward from community 
interaction. And we've divided it into three categories rather than the two. Uh, yeah. Mappable, the mappable things that can be connected to a particular place. Yeah. The, the countable things, which might not be so specific, but could be the level of activity and of organizations. Yeah. And then the intangible or the subjective. So an exercise to see how um, this information can provide a new level of understanding about the neighborhood and that new develop, which it will be a new development, a new installation is cited in a way that's sensitive to the, the community. Um, it also can open up um, information about what's important to the residents. What do they want to, what do they want to mark? What would be an example of an, an intangible for you in, the, in relation to what you're currently doing? I think the intangibles so far are stories and narratives and histories, right, particularly yep. long-term net, long-term residents. Uh, yep. and I'm thinking specifically this neighborhood in Porto that we're working with and yep. remembering what was there previously and how and it is an area that's on the edge of the city that's changed a lot. Yeah. And seeing if there's, and it's also um, multicultural. To, so to also see if there are cultural dimensions to the neighborhood that is not that are not always recognized that the motifs or there's something that could be built into something permanent so that residents see themselves in their environment the way that the cultural mapping will inform what's done we're, it's still a process so we're not completely certain but we're hoping it will affect where things are placed what is created the design of things that are created and also perhaps inspire um, social enterprises right. that there's new ideas will come through and um, culture-based activities and things yeah. like this. Yeah. So in relation to cultural mapping as, as a methodology, how do you feel it relates to existing power relationships um, or, you know, systematic oppression that's out there? Um, you know, are there concerns around cultural mapping as a methodology that it reinforces that or it helps to break that down? What are your thoughts on that? Um, thank you for this question. It opens up a very long answer, which <laughs> I won't give you in a minute. But I think there is a tradition of... Um, that's influencing cultural mapping, which is from the counter mapping perspective, which yeah. is about using this as a platform to visibilize people's real experiences or knowledges or things uh, related items that are not um, known by either the, the authorities or the general public or something and to bring a platform for discussion forward, um, which I think is a very Powerful, and that's why mapping is also often taken up by civil society organizations and things yeah. like this. Um, and relating to that, I think anything that's working with community or or pretending to develop an authoritative piece of knowledge of any sort, it's the question of who is involved and how they're involved and how the pluralistic views and perspectives of the people involved get maintained through the process without compacting them and and there is actually current research happening in british columbia now at thompson rivers university looking at that yeah. specific issue which is yeah. nice to see specifics i think one of the questions that's rarely asked um or should be asked more i guess um is about 
not only who is involved, but why would they want to be involved? Yeah. Oftentimes there's this sense that people will, of course, want to be involved in a process. And, and I think one of the large areas of, I guess, concern or issues that I've written about, think about, um, is about the use or the take up of the knowledge and I, uh, of what's mapped. Yeah. And, and again, oh, um, a lot of the focus so far on uh, in the cultural mapping toolkits, for instance, has been on the process of mapping, not what happens afterward. And yeah. I think that's the part that um, I'm hoping to develop a, an edited book in the next year or two as it gets going, yeah. looking at exactly uh, looking at the question of um, how do you analyze the data that you get? How do you put it together to be meaningful yeah. and what do you do with it and how does it make an impact in, in that yeah. larger, larger world? And if there's good practices out there for this yeah. to bring it forward. But I think the use and the take up is um, particularly with a, hopefully a, a city audience listening to this eventually it's related to the changing nature of what is what is being collected to it's one thing to ask people to identify where's the theater where's the gallery but it's another thing to ask them for their personal history or their attachments yeah. or their favorite places and with that personal involvement and um, engagement they're interest in knowing what's going to happen next is also heightened if you build up these expectations, they may never, and, and it's wished that or it disappears, um, they may never participate in a civil, in a civil sort of um, public engagement again. And that's the part that I think cities have to really um, come to grips with and, and kind of think through um, the different, and some of the information that is created is not necessarily an easy thing to um, put through planning systems. Yeah. And, and that's, but there are some municipalities out there trying yeah. and in, in trying to innovate um, internationally. And so that's where I'm hoping to look at. Yeah. And it's, I think one, I think you've hit on something when you talk about engaging people because uh, you know, certainly from my own experience, I know the minute you start engaging people, there's a hint of promise and hope that there'll be an outcome and a difference and uh, something, almost something tangible that people will see uh, out of being involved in a process. And um, not to preempt your book, and I'm very excited that that's yeah. going to come, but, you know, what would your hope be um, in your in the perfect world, what would you love when when a municipality goes through this process? And it's usually the you know cultural department that does these things, the arts and cultural department. What would your hope be that they actually do with the data that they've got and moving forward for themselves? Two things spring to mind. One is that it the results are actually publicised quite yeah. widely and celebrated, and whether that's in some format like a book or a public venue, something that brings all that back out into the public and allows yeah. people to learn from each other and, and, and in some form. Um, I think in the ideal world, and this is the hope for part, is that it becomes part of a regular system of cultural yeah. planning and, yeah. and policymaking. Um, oftentimes, 
cultural mapping is seen as a preparatory step before cultural planning processes actually take on. So it's something you develop lots of information, then you leave it behind and you continue on. And if culture is a dynamic, living, changing entity, and particularly if it's more than just where are the theaters, but how is your community living in the place it's living and what is important to them and what are the histories and the stories that haven't yet been told, that should be changing dynamically over time. And so there should be a need to have to, if not have a continuous process of mapping or something, at least a check-in every few years to identify something that's, I don't know, a different angle or uh, something so that it becomes something that there doesn't have to be a a fight to do (laughs) once. (laughs) And that becomes... um, yeah, uh, something that's accepted in the yeah. way that a lot of other things in city governments are monitored. It would be nice if, not not for control, but it would be nice if there was um, a realization that this type of, yeah. of information is also important. So how do you think that information then that you gather around culture and cultural assets can be used for local sustainability development? <laughs> That's a tough one. That combines lots of parts of the brains. Um, I know, I, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm a huge uh, believer that cultural vitality and sustainability is, is an important dimension yeah. of local sustainable development and that anything that can help put culture into the picture as these sustainable development processes and plannings and and policies and other initiatives take place is a is a good thing however you want to define culture i i think the data collected from the cultural mapping depends on what you collect i think from a, a planning perspective it can identify gaps in in infrastructure and there's some techniques that are are starting up as tests in some communities um in Europe, where they're they're connecting the mapping of cultural creative organizations with other data and a futuristic profiling into the future, so they're showing where the future hotspots may be. And when you get into things like stories and narratives and all those other intangible or subjective, it's it's more difficult, particularly for standard planning systems, to take that on. But I think with change um, happening in communities. Um, increasingly. Um, There seems to be a desire to know what's important to the community that's living there before the population grows quick so that they don't accidentally kill them and to understand more about what the community wants and what it's doing. And I think the identification of significant places, significant histories, that's always invaluable. And um, I should say at the same time that (laughs) I'm always thinking about how how this information might be useful, but I've also yeah. read critiques about how it doesn't have to be useful and that sometimes, oftentimes, the the process itself, the knowledge that's articulated and shared and documented, it really is an important aspect as yeah. well. And the connections that happen within these processes can um, inform new initiatives, um, knowledges and things that People didn't know before that the connections can can spark new initiatives of yeah. various sorts. And I, I I really like that thought about, especially for the people who are gathering the data. For them, it's new knowledge, and for some of them, it may be knowledge in a community that they've worked in for a while, and giving them some 
level of information that they didn't have before because they've connected with their community in a different manner. And, you know, that ability to uh, inform forward-focused decisions just by the sheer gathering of the information. I think it's really critical in some ways to sustaining local development because then decision-makers are making informed decisions uh, on behalf of the community rather than assumed decisions, um, which is the model that, you know, we could all talk about for hours and hours and hours, which we've all <laughs> seen on multiple levels around the world. Um, in relation to, to take that a step further, you know, a number of our listeners are going to be people who work in very small communities. And it's sometimes those communities can feel quite isolated um, and or feel like the poor cousin to the big city that gets a lot of the money and all of those kind of things. So I want to talk about uh, cultural-based development model and, and for small communities and what you think would be a great model and cultural development model for the smaller communities that are out there. Um, I think this is an active question, and 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 actually there isn't a model. It's more about strategies, and yeah. um, but if they all work well, then they can be models in time. But I think um, my own definition, without looking at literature or anything, but I think um, the culture-based development strategies really include two aspects. One is that culture is explicitly recognized and taken up as an asset yeah. of the local local locale um, and that there's a care to cultural there's a care given about the cultural vibrancy and sustainability of that community yeah. so it's more than just recognizing but there's something more actively caring or, or, or for that continuance i've actually conducted some literature reviews recently uh, looking at cultural and creative industries yeah. develop not development but in the rural and remote areas because i think yeah. for me it's an interest first of all there's there's three major themes i've seen that sort of consecutively have been developed the first was about cultural vitality um, and really using culture for community development good quality of life that sort of thing yeah. um, a second area that emerged, as wouldn't be a surprise, around 2000, 2005, is really about the rural creative class. Who are the people that you can collect, can attract from outside the urban area and bring it to your rural community? What are they attracted by that kind of thing? Um, it took a number of years after that before there was actually attention to the rural cultural or creative businesses or nice. the cultural economy or the idea that there are actually entrepreneurs that have are trying to survive in these in these um, areas. But now there seems to be a growing international discussion about smaller places and cultural and creative development. Yeah. And these three themes are converging gradually. Yeah. Um, but the, and, and relating to that, I know of some researchers in Canada who are actively investigating what it means to, what, how can you develop a rurally grounded 
um, development approach that's not just a tr- trying to adapt the creative city model yes. which won't work in your community mm-hmm. and so um, some of that is still going on so hopefully there'll be a few more answers in the next <laughs> few years it's been interesting looking at how long the types of questions that have been asked and how much they're influenced by each other over time yeah. and it, it also um, reflects to me I guess one of my pet peeves recently is that um, in in research, um, practice-based activities and innovations do not appear unless they're documented. Right. So yeah. unless you're you're not real <laughs> until yeah. you suddenly show up as a case study within within an article or a book or right. something like that, which is really yeah. sad. And I think it really shows that there there really has to be more of a connection between research and practice and planning yeah. and and really understanding that this shouldn't be a like one time thing when someone's writing an article and they need some examples, yeah. but something that feeds one another over time so that there might be some wonderful examples of, of um, approaches that are being innovated that we just don't know about because yeah. there's but hopefully they're being shared within the creative city network yeah. <laughs> and that sort of thing and and but I think it's really important to make those bridges so that these practices don't remain invisible as yeah. such but actually can uh, can influence others and inspire yeah. others and I like your idea about sharing them within the network. I think that's a great um, almost platform to invite the network to start doing of sharing ideas and not having those ideas just, as you say, written in research or documented very heavily somewhere, but actually sharing that spark of an idea that somebody's doing somewhere. Um, and I liked what you were saying about, you know, the creative city model doesn't necessary translate into a smaller community and to be focused on what's actually important for the community itself I think is important rather than always looking over your shoulder at what the kind of big brother's doing um, and trying to to almost in some ways mirror image that and it just you're right it doesn't work it doesn't sit alongside what your community wants I'm going to one of your other passions that I'm very aware of is cultural tourism and you and your team have just won some amazing awards by some films that you created around cultural tourism and congratulations on those um they were wonderful wonderful videos and um and I um have had the privilege of meeting some of your team and they're an amazing group of people. Um, but can you explain to our listeners, like, what what is cultural tourism? Creative tourism. Yeah, creative <laughs> tourism. Creative tourism. No, that's um, really interesting, though. What's the difference between cultural tourism yeah. and creative tourism? There are some some writers who talk about creative tourism as a type of cultural tourism or right. as a response to the massification of cultural tourism. Right, okay. And we kind of take both. Um, but creative tourism, um, I guess, at its core is enabling travelers to develop their creative potential right. and okay. developing opportunities for them to do that. Um, there are many definitions. It appears everyone that writes anything wants to cre- create their own definition. Or and over time it's changed, it's evolved. So within the Creator project, which you mentioned, which is the project we've been working on in Portugal, which is a research and application project to catalyze a network of creative tourism offers through four regions of the country. Uh, we looked at a lot of definitions of creative tourism and we came up with four 
reoccurring dimensions. And so we picked those um, to sort of create um, a framework for the development of new initiatives. So they were um, active participation. So the traveler does not watch you do something or buy your product at the end. They may do that anyway, but they actually are creating something. Uh, they're learning something. So yeah. they're learning skills. They may be learning about the local culture and a lot of other um, items in their way. Um, there should be an opportunity for creative self-expression. So it's not only um, a fill in the blanks kind of approach to everyone's gonna come out with the same product at the end, yeah. but you should have that opportunity to do something that's somehow adapted for something that's meaningful to you. And the fourth is, or the fourth dimension that we identified was immersion into community. So you're, and this might be specific to our project in that it was part of previous definitions, but a lot of the work that's been done on creative tourism has been focused on big cities. Yeah. So you can have a professional artist in the studio teaching you something and that's fine. Um, our projects were, our our focus was on smaller communities in rural areas. And so that immersion into the community was to us very important to link tourism and travel to the place and the people where you're visiting. Yeah. And so what we came to realize as well is that place, um, the specificities of the place in which something is created underlined everything, but it really um, enabled a, for instance, a watercolor course or a class to be completely different if it's held in a castle and you're doing yeah. the motifs of something built in yeah. inside the castle versus on the side of a hill with yeah. in nature or that sort of thing. And so um, that was our that's our definition. That yeah, we, I think it's held. I think it's really exciting. I really like um, the four principles that you developed because I think they are re they are exciting ones and almost create a really nice little checkpoint if someone's trying to think about how to develop this in their own municipality to go, you know, does this have active participation? Are the people who are engaging learning something, do they get to do a self-expression or, or is it paint by numbers? Um, and, you know, are they getting immersed in the community and what's going on? Um, and I think I, th I think they're great kind of guiders in in what you're doing, and for people to be able to apply those in their thinking if they want to develop some sort of uh, creative tourism. In in the work that you did, in the work that your team did, um, what why did you think it was important to develop creative tourism and the idea and kind of bring it to the fore and talk about creative tourism? The original, I guess, impetus behind the project was to find a bridge between culture and tourism. Yeah. And that was what our, I guess, our funding framework was within. And um, I had known about creative tourism and and for a while and thought about that. Uh, continued to think about it, but hadn't been able to act on it. And when this opportunity came up, I thought, well, that's the perfect connection between the cultural creative sector and tourism. Yeah. And at the time, and well, until right now, um, tour, within Portugal, it was also a Portugal-specific project. Lisbon and Porto have lots of tourists, or maybe yeah. not right at the moment, but it really was overburdened. And so there is no use in putting in a project that focused on attracting yet more tourists to those two areas. 
So from the beginning, the focus was really on um, small places outside yeah. the majorly visited areas um, throughout the country and using creative tourism to to develop activities that could attract people off the beaten path that it's the activity themselves that can attract people to an area and that they would stay there for the duration of the project so places that you might drift through in an hour or two you might stay for three days to do a special workshop and that this could be quite transformative in its ability to spin off into um, both economically for people staying three days, et cetera, but also um, as a seed of, of larger and wider development projects. Yeah. So how do you then see, like where do you see this research um, going in relation to Canada? Like how can communities in Canada apply the kind of creative tourism work that you've been doing? On one hand, there is actually a project that started, but it's still to be activated out of British Columbia, uh, actually from Vancouver Island University, which is looking at a community in the north of BC and I believe Whitehorse in the Yukon to develop localized networks of among artists and creators and others to develop pods of places where you could go. But I know um, that there are creative people and organizations and specificities of place that would be very attractive across the country and so actually I I we're hoping that our our our, um, experiment um, continues on it is starting it's at least an informal network um, but also we we've heard from um, numerous people that we've inspired their projects whether in Canada or Brazil or others which is always nice to hear yeah (laughs) yeah I think we learned a lot about what we took off. Uh, we had five, re- what we took on uh, with our project. We had five research centers, 30 researchers, and 40 different pilot organizations. Yeah. Um, and advice, I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> I would say do fewer places and more networks within each places. And so that would be the way I could see Canada. But we're very interested in um, actual helping inspire others um, to to develop this area because we're realizing that um, the connections between people who are doing creative tourism don't seem to be very great. It it is. uh, And so we've actually created an offshoot of Creator to be a Creator International Network, which uh, should have its website up shortly. But it's really... It's not funded, so it's something that we're looking for collaborators. Yeah. But we really think that there's a missing piece about allowing people to learn from each other. And yeah. the people have heard of creative tourism, but they don't know what to do and they don't know how to make it sustainable, which is also an issue. And they need to be more connected in the same way that the Creative City Network actually began, yeah. where it was really uh, individuals out there finding one another. I, I can see something similar here. And also the proponents may be from the tourism side or they might be from the cultural side or they in our in our case we have a number of municipalities as well as regional development agencies as our pilot organizations and they um, have can play a really important role in developing the infrastructure for a network that can enable lots of individual entrepreneurs to connect together without having to recreate all of the administration sort of and marketing at the middle so we we are really hopeful that that will start and that we can inspire um of course i have 
an ongoing interest in the possibility of a Create Tour Canada <laughs> starting up, but because uh, I actually think it would be, it's very, it's very, um, it enables entrepreneurial ideas, small scale yeah. tourism um, experiences, and um, takes it beyond experiences to really showcase arts, culture, creativity, creative um, participation. Um, yeah. Within travelers and and for the and I think for the communities as well, it seems to be aligning within um, a, an array of different types of alternate tourisms that yeah. seem to be emerging, that really privilege the distinctiveness of a place. Not wanting to be part travelers, not wanting to be part of a main yeah. mass mass anything, and because it's small scale in nature, it could really be placed anywhere. Um, yeah. The, if the formulas, but the formulas themselves are still, that's what we're researching is yeah. how to, how to um, help others develop formulas that can work. Well, I'm sure that um, many people listening will be very excited to um, have the magic formula. <laughs> <laughs> as they move forward hey we're so, we're in a obviously in an interesting phase in the world um how do you feel creative tourism might play a role in assisting communities moving forward as we're working hopefully out and through the covid pandemic yeah it's a difficult time for everyone and and it's been difficult to think forward as to what's it, it's we we're We've convinced ourselves, because of course no one knows what's going to happen, yeah. that creative tourism can be part of the solution going forward yeah. to restart things. And we think that um, creative tourism is, the, it's workshops and things like that, in, particularly for smaller communities, that usually is the format that is taken on or small scale experiences. So it's small scale intentionally by nature which yeah. seems to fit quite well with the social bubbles and the family outings and things yeah. like this yeah. um, and also at least in Portugal we're hearing more about people wanting to stay in one place for a longer time yeah. rather than flit around from place to place so if you're going to be stationary for a period of time you're going to need things to do <laughs> to yes. not be bored yeah. at least in my yeah. brain that's how it works so we think that um, creative tourism would be a lovely addition or part of that mix of activities that would be there and assets for yeah. uh, for visitors, um, and also um, domestic. There's more and more talk about domestic tourism because yeah. people can't go elsewhere, and I think creative tourism um, offers a wonderful platform for cross cultural. Uh, learning yeah. and cross and and even if you are perhaps a, a skilled potter a pottery tradition from a different culture will expand your horizons and you learn more yeah. and it will and and if you can't travel somewhere else you can still explore your own interests and curiosities and things you've never gotten around to yet and and go and, and take a yeah. class of some sort somewhere i think from the community perspective all the communities want to get things moving again at some scale. And um, creative tourism can be a piece of that puzzle. And I think from a sociocultural sort of perspective of the community, we found that the people um, that were part of our pilots uh, are part of our pilot organizations. The process of going through the development of creative tourism 
possibilities was really inspiring and for them in the rethinking ways that you can um, portray your and present your community to yeah. visitors and to yourselves and and what things are really important to your place and what are specifics and what's meaningful to you. And um, as people rebuild connections to their place, um, just as residents and, and looking at how do you want to evolve from this point, I think that yeah. reconnection is really important. Yeah, I think the dialogue of um, that attracting the domestic creative tourist is um, a really in some ways from my perspective a very exciting one because it makes us as you say re-look at things through a little bit of a different lens and put opportunity where we may not have seen it before and so you know but it is going to be a challenge for all of us moving forward look we've talked about some amazing things and um, we could we could talk, talk forever. And, um, but for you personally, what's in store for you for the next five years? I have actually been just um, asked to, to take on a new role at my research institutions. Yeah. They're, re, they're reorganizing and they're creating new multidisciplinary thematic lines across the whole research center that goes across wow. research groups. And, and uh, so I've been asked to coordinate or be the lead coordinator for one called urban cultures, sociabilities and participation, wow. which is all about culture and cities of all sizes as platforms for social change and connecting research with um, citizens oh. and with policy and with internationalization. So yes. <laughs> this will be, so it's, it's huge. And I have, you know, it's, it's a new idea. So we're still not all sure what that will mean in practice, but it, to me, it's very exciting because it enables me to dwell more um, deeply into this connection between research and society. Yeah. How do you do it well? How do you set up citizen um, involved labs and things like yeah. this in a way that then makes changes in the community, in the policy. Yeah. And, and we've also, I've been part of the portfolio is to look at research action initiatives. Yes. Um, so that I'm, I've become quite a fan of the idea of for a uh, future forming research, yeah. the idea that you aren't just observing change, but you're actually consciously putting yeah. your sums up to make change and they've um, in defining this field such as uh, my institute has um, put within this category of research action creative tourism because yeah. of the way that we did it yeah. um, in that we have we have catalyzed a field that didn't really exist as a net in the national network yeah. Um, and as well as art intervention in society kind of projects and things like this and other sort of ways of connecting culture broadly defined and, and citizens and policy. So I'm quite excited about that. And of course, mm -hmm. we want to um, activate Create Tour International. We're, yes. going, we're planning now on how we can involve the followers of Create Tour, but also um, open up the, the doors so that the members define what they'd like to do. We have, again, no funding, but we know that collectively people want to connect yeah. and the technologies exist now that we can connect internationally and find people that want, that have often similar issues in completely different circumstances yeah. that might be able to learn from each other. Um, that's part of the mean too. There's still, 
I would love to have enough time to write a book of my own yeah. that enables me to connect cultural mapping and culture, cultural development in smaller places and culture and local development, all of those yeah. sort of things that are somewhat separate in my brain most of the time. But <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen in the next. <laughs> I'm hoping I will. I will try. Um, but um, yeah, it should be an interesting year, and, and I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's not a pre-retirement phase of wanting to consolidate things in my brain, but I do hope that I can start to draw threads together between yeah. the different areas I've been working on. And um, as others are able to see and I can't <laughs> oftentimes. So um, that's, that's part of the goal. Well, it sounds an incredibly exciting uh, few years coming up from you for you. And um, it's a little bit of, we might have to revisit you in a year's okay. time. <laughs> But yeah, things are going. Look, thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add to our conversation before we finish off? Um, I'm trying not to just repeat myself. I think just to remind people, um, I guess, to always think of bridging and exchange and to think yeah. about how um, the barriers between research and practice and planning and policy can somehow be broken uh, or and and be bridged in an ongoing way of some sort. I, I think it's increasingly important to ensure that culture is part of the broader city planning in yeah. all sizes of community in a way that integrates it but does not invisibilize it so that it's it's recognized. And I think to thank you for the opportunity. This is fantastic. Thank you very much. And to all of the members of the Creative City Network from whom I've learned so much over the years. And to let you know that I'm open for collaboration if anyone wishes to do an international something or other explore any of the topics that I've, I've mentioned. I may be based over here, but I'm located not too far away on electronics. Yeah. But um, I think there's a lot of um, good examples and also challenges that everyone's dealing with yeah. and, and the more communication the better wonderful nancy thank you for your time i really appreciate okay. it um there's been so much here for all of us to think about and re-listen over and over again um, it's exciting to hear what your team's doing um of the number of things that we've talked about for those listeners who want to know where they are. Um, the Creative Cities Canada Network will put them on their website so you'll be able to see them there. And um, uh, we look forward to um, what you have for us in the future. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Today's episode of the Creative City Canada podcast has been made possible through a partnership between Creative City Network of Canada and McEwen University, and with the support of the many members of the CCNC. Thank you, Nancy, for sharing your thoughts and your time with us today, and thanks to all of you out there who took the time to listen. Continue the conversation online and see more resources and links from today's guest on the CCNC Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. Join us on the Creative City Canada podcast for other interviews with Ken Lum from Monument Lab and Mr. Ernesto Otone, the UNESCO Assistant Director General for Culture. If you found this useful and interesting, please comment, share, and subscribe. Until then, continue being creative.